Well, aloha and good morning, good afternoon, good evening to those of you in Europe. In the middle of the night in Australia and New Zealand, we have a few listeners down under as well. In any event, whether you're listening live today, it's July 10th, or to podcasts or streaming audio, we appreciate you being here for the final installment of this seven-part series we've been doing on the ancient hermetic teachings of the Kabbalion. Last week, because of a computer crash, we did audio only. This week, we're going back to the slides. We did have a little problem with the slides, but we're going to stumble through it anyway. It's a nice uh, addition, I think, to have the slides available to us. Uh, Next week, we're going to do a program in which we discuss the new premium training that's being added to the Mystery School beginning at 1.30. The free forum, this long-standing program, will continue to be heard at 1 o'clock Pacific, 4 in the East. Um, Again, absolutely free, whether you tune in live by web or join us by telephone or Skype or the replays. All of that will be available. The archives with more than 170 past classes will always be available at our website, theagelesswisdom.com. But in response to a request from many of you, we're going to add beginning at 1.30 and running till about 3 o'clock Pacific time every Sunday, a premium training. And you can enroll at theagelesswisdom.com beginning in a couple of days, first part of this new week, maybe tomorrow the 11th or Tuesday the 12th. Certainly by then we should have the shopping cart, the store, up and running. And you can subscribe either for a single class, one at a time, for a 13-week term at a nice deep discount, or for an entire year, which takes the price down to a little over $3 and most affordable. So theagelesswisdom.com to enroll in the premium training. Check that out in the next few days, and then you'll have the rest of the week and the following week, actually. I believe we'll introduce the whole concept next week in the free forum and then probably begin on the 24th with the premium training, which will be different from what we've been doing in the same way that the seven-part series on the Kabbalion has been a departure. Instead of a different presentation uh, every week, which is what we've done for the last three years or more, we're going to, as we've done with the Kabbalion, roll up our sleeves a little bit and bear down on a particular topic. Uh, A book, like one of the books I'm sure we'll do early on, is Aldous Huxley's Perennial Philosophy. I'd like to do Andrew Harvey's book, The Direct Path. Uh, Just as we've studied the Kabbalion for the last couple of months here. And uh, other topics like I'd like to begin with a whole series on stress and anxiety and give you some practical tools. And 
again, will be interactive. You'll be able to ask questions and make comments with the text box, but also by telephone or Skype. I'm sure the class size will be smaller. It'll be much more manageable. And though on the Internet, I think um, much more like the classes and trainings that I used to do in Los Angeles, only instead of having to drive across town to attend, you'll be able to sit down in front of your computer. The part of the uh, premium training that will be similar to the ongoing free forum is that if you're unable to attend the class live, all you have to do is keep the password and you'll be able to attend on demand. The streaming audio with the videos, the slides, will be available on demand at any time as long as you hold on to the password. Again, this free forum at 1 o'clock will never require a password. The newsletter will be free. This mystery school free forum, as I call it, will be free. The podcasts will continue. They'll be free. The archives will always be up there. You'll never need a password for any of that. But the premium training that follows at 1.30, you'll receive a password in the mail every week. For that class along with the URL or the hyperlink to the website so it'll be your job to keep track of that so that in the future you can not only have the address of the event the URL but the password that you need to get into it okay and then you could again listen live or on demand or you could even download to your computer and and put the programs, the premium programs, as well as the free forum on your iPod, your iPad, your iPhone, your whatever portable MP3 reader, whatever you want to use. So uh, next week will be the same, and then the following week, July 24th, uh, the Mystery School will wrap up by about 1.30. We'll start more promptly right at 1 o'clock. I'll actually begin a little before 1 o'clock Pacific. And then the school itself will start the class at the top of the hour, 1 o'clock straight up. And then at 1.30, we'll switch over to the premium training. Any question about that, you can email me, my initials, mb, at theagelesswisdom.com. mb for Michael Benner, just the initial mb at theagelesswisdom.com, and I'll respond to your email personally. Okay, well, today it's um, the seventh and final installment of this wonderful book, The Kabbalion on the Secret Hermetic Teachings. The Mystery Schools of Old began with Pythagoras, and the teachings of the ancient Egyptian and Greek and Kabbalistic philosophies from Mesopotamia, from Persia, from Northern Africa, from that whole region, Greece, that whole area around the Mediterranean, really the cradle of civilization. This is the philosophy and the personal development teachings of the people that built the pyramids, and the people that seem to have truly advanced 
knowledge, we're able to accomplish things that even today, with all of our science and technology and engineering know-how, we would be unable to accomplish. It's unlikely that even today we could build the pyramids. It would be a massive effort and uh, unbelievable cost of time and energy. But the truth is, even with giant cranes and machinery, it would be nearly an impossible thing to build one of the pyramids, much less all three in the Giza area. And um, we're not sure how they were built. We don't know very much about the technology that was employed. There is an assumption that a lot of slave labor was used and using logs as a kind of a conveyor to roll these giant bricks. But how were the pieces fitted together? Uh, How did these giant boulders get shaped in such a way that you can't even slide a credit card between any of the boulders that make up the pyramids. How did they happen to be perfectly aligned to the North Star? It's just remarkable, the skills of these ancient people. And uh, as I say, we, we really don't have any idea how they did it. Some of what's been discovered, there's some evidence that the ancient Egyptians had access to electricity and batteries. The actual batteries with wires attached have been located in the pyramids. Some scientists scoff and they say that just can't be. That device you have must have been used for something else. But other scientists say, no, these are definitely batteries and wires attached. So what did they know? Uh, certainly, there were great astronomers, and like other ancient people, the the Mayans, for example, uh, watched the stars for centuries and had a really profound understanding of the way the universe worked. These ancient people knew that it was not the Earth, but the sun that was the center of our solar system. It was just the Europeans that came along hundreds of years later They had to be convinced. Uh, The ancient Egyptians knew that the earth was round and not flat. Pythagoras said, well, obviously it's round. I've seen the shadow of the earth on the moon. I know it's round. (laughs) It's a globe or a sphere. Look, on the moon, there's its shadow. But hundreds of years later, Europeans weren't so sure were afraid even in the 15th, early 16th century that they might sail off the edge of the globe. So we're studying the philosophy and the spiritual teachings of the ancients, our ancestors by all accounts, all of us. Every human being on the earth contains the genetic markers of these people from northern Africa. And that's significant to know. There have been other lineages, other races of humanoids that did not survive. Branches of the tree that became extinct. But of the four or five distinct races of human beings, the human race that survives today, 
every single living human being on this planet Earth contains the same genetic markers. So this is Mom and Dad, Uncle Harry and Aunt Mary from a very long time ago. This is handed down through the family, so to speak. And I'd have you consider that's a pretty good way to look at it. So uh, let me get over to the slide section here. And depending on how your browser is set up, you may have to click on the slide button, but you'll probably see the first slide. We wait for the server to come up. Mm. And so the second slide you've seen in past weeks, this is a quotation from the Kabbalion. Just summarizing again, the principles of truth are seven. He who knows these, understandingly, possesses the magic key before whose touch all the doors of the temple fly open. So we're talking about the seven hermetic principles. And if you missed one or more of the last six weeks, again, they're all available in the archives on the website, theagelesswisdom.com. Some have slides, some do not, but you can check it out. And so on our next slide, we can see the seven key principles upon which the entire hermetic philosophy is based. The first is the concept of mentalism. And of course, all seven of these principles flow from the very first principle. In the same way, every color of the rainbow, every possible color, is found in white light. A prism refracts the light so that you can see the different colors, at least the seven basic colors of the rainbow. But all of that is in white light. In the same way, all seven of these principles come from the first principle, mentalism. All is mind. There is one thing, the ancient Egyptians would say, one thing at work in the universe. One mind, one heart, one life. As many metaphysically oriented people are prone to say these days, hey, there's only one of us here. What appears to be separate individuals in a world of separated form are units of that one consciousness. In fact, even the word unit implies or suggests that they are somehow united. So a separate unit is a little bit contradictory. But it does reflect the paradox of the universe, the single una, one, like unicycle, solitary thing, the one life. This is a major departure from most religion, especially the monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, who talk about one God, they're monotheistic, but they separate the creator from its creation. 
and suggest that God may actually have a physical form, may live in a body very far away. However, the pantheistic and mystical traditions of all cultures and all times found not, uh, found not only in ancient Egypt, but ancient Tibet and China and elsewhere, says, no, the one God is the totality of all that is, that everything is in the one, that God's body, so to speak, is not shaped like a giant man who lives in a castle in the sky. That's for children. That's where we get God confused with Santa Claus. But perhaps what we mean by the creator, the divine one God, is the totality of consciousness. For we live in a universe of spirit and matter, but it is a conscious universe. Certainly, material beings are conscious. We're aware. Humans, animals are aware that they exist. They have their thoughts, they have their feelings, and they are aware of that. Plants demonstrate a certain awareness, and even the mineral kingdom. There's some remarkable research being done now with crystals that show the patterns that crystals form even simple water crystals, reflect the consciousness of the environment around them. Crystals that form in an environment where there's a lot of human hostility or animal fear have one look. And the very same water crystals that form in an environment where people are safe and happy and loving and kind to each other have a much more beautiful and complex appearance. So it seems that everything on each level, each kingdom, human and animal, the plant or vegetable, and even the mineral kingdom has its consciousness and is included in the one life. That means the one mind. Your will is a division of divine will. Your love, a subset or a part of the one love. And your apparently separated body, part of a single body that is the universe. Marsha McLuhan wrote once a very provocative quotation. He said, I don't know who discovered water, but I'll bet it was not a fish. That's the situation humanity is in. What we're looking for is who is looking. Jacob Bohm said that. We're looking for ourselves. We don't understand ourselves. We judge others. We try to control the world around us. And except for you good students who've chosen to be here today and others like you, most have rejected the opportunity, even the responsibility, and the freedom to understand reality as our ancient teachers from time out of mind, the ageless teachings have advised us to know ourselves as above, so below. If you want to understand the world around you, know yourself. And then you will begin to understand. 
Become conscious of your consciousness. Become aware of your awareness. And then you will see your thoughts and your feelings and your speech and your behavior in an entirely different way. This is the first principle. Mentalism. The one mind. The one thing. The one life. Then quickly... The second principle is the law of correspondence. This is the second rubric of the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus. As above, so below. And as it is below, so it is above to accomplish the miracles of the one thing. This is the law of correspondence. And it brings up the relationship of spirit to matter what Einstein called energy and mass. And if you were with us a few weeks ago when we did this second part, you'll remember we talked about the third element that comes out of the law of correspondence, which is the consciousness between spirit and matter. Spirit gives birth to the material world, which then becomes conscious. And so the sun, if you will, of spirit and matter, of father and mother, is the consciousness aspect. Vibration, well, the material world, as Einstein proved, mass, is simply another form of energy. Energy exists in many forms, and energy and mass, or spirit and matter, if you will, are convertible to forms of the same thing. So energy vibrates, matter vibrates. Everything is in a dance. Spirit vibrates. Your emotions vibrate. The mental plane vibrates. And much of the study of hermetic philosophy is about adjusting the vibratory rate of your mental and emotional nature. In the fourth week, we talked about the principle of polarity, that if it vibrates, anything that vibrates has its poles, its north pole and its south pole. The sine wave, if you remember your basic trigonometry, it had a peak and a valley. If you stretch a rubber band, pull it down, and then let it go, it's going to have its poles, its high point, and its low point. The peak and the valley are the polarities, like the magnetic poles of the Earth, Arctic and Antarctic, or the poles of a bar magnet. We talked about that. Then rhythm is the swing of the pendulum between those poles, the tides, if you will, the ebb and the flow of energy working between the flux, the electromagnetic field between the poles. And we talked about the correspondence between electromagnetism and consciousness in that way. And uh, then last week we talked about cause and effect. We live in a universe that is ordered and behaves according to law. Most magnificent concept. Nothing just happens. Everything has a reason 
for happening. And again, the student of the Kabbalion, of metaphysics, of personal and spiritual development, understands how to adjust and account for all of these principles. And so today we come to the concept of gender, which is the masculine and feminine principle in all of this. On this slide, we see the principle of gender and a few bullet points. Gender is in everything, generating the generations. And uh, this is just my, <laughs> my way of pointing out that when you say the word gender to most people, they think of masculine and feminine and sex and procreation. And even in the animal and plant kingdom, you have gender. Uh, most plants have their masculine and feminine aspects. Um, the role of the bee in pollinating the flowers and so on is part of the masculine and feminine, the yin and the yang, the way the Chinese refer to it. And so you can imagine how closely related gender is to polarity and rhythm and all of the other principles. The second bullet point here, everything has its masculine and feminine principles. Even if you don't see them as masculine and feminine, you may not think of the flower as being feminine and the bumblebee or the honeybee as being masculine, but that's what we're talking about. That's the role that is played. And uh, then the third bullet point, this can be a little complex. I'm going to go over this only briefly, but you may want to come back and take a look at this little model. I've numbered it because, in a way, it's upside down. Uh, the first plane is the physical plane or the etheric plane, physical etheric plane. The second I have listed is the emotional, which really sits on top of the physical. The third plane, the mental plane, is a higher plane in frequency than either the emotional or the physical. And, of course, the soul or buddhic plane, what many people refer to as heaven, would be the fourth plane, and that sits above the lower three worlds of mental, emotional, and physical. So in listing these in order, <laughs> you have the problem of also putting them upside down. I hope that's clear enough. The physical plane corresponds in terms of the ancient elements, uh, earth, water, fire, and the air. The physical plane corresponds to the earth, for obvious reasons. The emotional plane, also known as the astral plane, is a plane of water. It is the liquid nature, the liquidic nature, if you will, of the emotions that causes it to be seen as watery. If you've ever worked with dreams and dream archetypes or dream symbols, you know that water in all cultures on Earth 
even cultures a hundred years ago that were isolated, like rainforest people, and had never come in touch with Western or Eastern civilization. They had the same archetypes, the same universal principles in their subconscious minds. And water corresponding to the emotional nature is one of them. The mental plane is a plane of fire. The mind is fiery in many ways. Fire is not a reference metaphysically to uh, destruction, things burning up or burning down, so much as it is a reference in an alchemical sense to purification. Fire has to do with the chemical process of burning off the dross or the impurities, leaving what is pure, what is not dross, the valuable metal, for example, in metallurgy. And that's the alchemical reference to the fire of the mind, the way in which the mind eliminates things that are not true, that muddy the waters, so to speak, and uh, leave you with a more clear and more pure, if you will, golden understanding, lifting blood to gold. And uh, the fourth plane, of course, that stands above the three lower worlds of the physical dense universe is the plane of the soul. This is sometimes called the buddhic plane. And as I've already said, religious people refer to this as heaven as if uh, when you die, you're going to go to heaven. This is because, and this is the second key principle that we're talking about today in terms of the differences between the pantheistic philosophies of old and uh, the religion as practiced today. The first I mentioned was this idea that God is not separate, but everywhere equally present a container or totality that the creation is within the creator. In this fourth point, the soul or buddhic plane is a reference to the idea that your soul is always, quote, in heaven, that it's not going there. Your soul is in heaven now, that you are a reflection in physical form an extension or a manifestation, a projection, if you will, of a soul that's already in heaven. We often use um, the movie theater as an example. If you go to the movies, you're not looking at the film. You're looking at a reflection of the film on the wall. And the film is still in the projector behind you. Well, that projector behind you would be akin to the soul, and the reflection on the wall, which is nothing but light, would correspond to the physical nature that most people think is so real. So these are two of the most important differences in pantheism or panentheism, the pagan philosophies of uh, before religion and before the age of the prophets, 
what our ancient ancestors believed in all cultures and all societies, as opposed to religion. Religion has separated God and brought the soul down to something that is a part of you, rather than you being a part of the soul, so to speak. I think Teilhard de Chardin, in his book, Phenomena of Man, says it really well. He said, uh, you do not have a soul, you are a soul. And in many ways, that sums up metaphysics. I'd also call your attention to the final uh, term that I've attached to each of these four, uh, reflex, insight, intellect, and intuition. And you can see how this corresponds to the different planes of existence. That is, physical beings, the animal, for example, has only a reflex. It's just autonomic, fight or flight, a, a reaction, a reflex to allow it to survive when it doesn't have time to think for example. As the animal develops, it gets instinct or herd mentality. This is often referred to as the gut feeling, but it's the lower gut. It's the sacral center or the lower solar plexus center, the second chakra or somewhere between the second and third chakra. That's instinct. Intellect, of course, is something that most people cherish. They're sending their kids to school to develop their intellectual abilities so that they can reason, so that they can think in abstracts, do mathematics and geometry and, and apply certain principles of life uh, to the challenges of living. But there is a higher function mentally in terms of developing consciousness. And that's intuition, which corresponds to the spiritual level or the plane of the soul. And intuition, some people call that gut instinct, but it comes from the heart, not the groin. Uh, there's a difference, a very important difference between the instinct of an animal in the intuition of a spiritual human being. Even though they're both referred to as gut feelings, <laughs> it's an important distinction for you to understand. The lower gut, again, is herd mentality, and animals have access to that. But the intuitive nature is the coming of the light. It's the dawning of an idea or you may be thunderstruck. Sometimes an intuition will come like the dawn, very slowly and gradually. Sometimes it'll just pop on like a light bulb. You know, there's that archetype. Ford has a better idea. Aha, I see. The light bulb came on. Now I see. And sometimes you're just absolutely thunderstruck. And again, the student of mysticism, of metaphysics, of personal and spiritual development, learns to 
create a kind of a lightning rod in the top of your head to attract intuition. It's done through mindfulness and meditation and contemplation. Because often intuition speaks with a very small, quiet voice and requires you to deliberately calm your emotional nature and quiet the voices and the pictures in your head that you might hear the still, small voice of the intuitive nature from your own oversoul. Often when people think God speaks to them directly or they're in communication with the Christ or the Buddha nature, your Buddha nature, that's your own soul. Okay. Now, believe what you want to believe. I'm not going to tell somebody that they're wrong because, as Plato said, the soul shares the ground of God. Certainly the soul is a part of God, right? But to believe the totality of God has directed its attention to speak to you and no other thing is a little hard to believe, especially when you begin to consider that this universe is teeming with life, that there are billions upon billions of planets and the number of life forms. I mean, Jesus must be very busy if he is visiting all of these planets. That must be a full-time job. Again, I don't. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't mean to be critical here at all. Uh, these are rich and beautiful concepts, but when taken literally, they can become really silly, even absurd. So here's an example of mental gender in the brain, the masculine and feminine nature in the brain we do indeed have two hemispheres. It's as if we have two separate brains. They're connected by a bundle of 100 million nerve fibers, and yet, while the brains can communicate with each other, the two hemispheres do cooperate with each other. There are many times that they act quite independent of each other. And here you can see some of the basic differences of the way the left brain and the right brain work in their masculine and feminine nature. The left brain is very masculine. It is logical. It is sequential. It is rational and analytical. It is often called the objective mind corresponds to the conscious mind, which we'll look at in a moment. And it likes to break things down. Part of being rational and analytical is its deductive nature. So it moves from general to specific and breaks things down into little parts. Our feminine brain, the right brain, which interestingly controls the left side of the body, just as the left brain controls the right side of the body. The feminine is more random than logical. It's more intuitive than sequential. It's more holistic than rational. It's a synthesizing, subjective, in other words, much more personal, more about the self than the world around us. 
the masculine or left brain is more about the elements out there. The feminine or right brain is more about the internal landscape in here. And just as the masculine left brain looks at little parts and pieces, we need to bring the right brain online, the feminine nature, to look at the whole, the big picture, so to speak. Now, the same concept of gender, a masculine and feminine, that generates, again, look at the derivation of the word, all generations are generated by gender. We looked at it in the brain, now we look at it in the mind, which is very different. The mental nature expresses through the organ called the brain, which has its two hemispheres, left brain, right brain, masculine and feminine. Well, the mind, in the same way, has its two parts, a conscious part and a subconscious part. And in this slide, we see that like the tip of an iceberg, the conscious mind is 5 to 10% of our potential. Or the subconscious mind is submerged and out of sight. If the Titanic thought that iceberg on the horizon was pretty big, imagine what was underneath the water. The other 90 to 95% is submerged. And so it is with the subconscious mind. You have exactly the same thing. It's there. It's operating. But it's operating on an unconscious level. Most people are not aware of what's happening in the subconscious. And this is probably the first, and I would dare to say, primary benefit of a regular practice of meditation and contemplation is you can expand your awareness from the tip of the iceberg, the conscious mind, into the subconscious. You can gradually become aware of things that most people are never aware of. You can begin to, I love this word, realize what's going on in your mind that most people will never realize, especially the why questions, your motives, why you feel the way you feel, why you speak the way you speak, why you said that, why you did this. Yeah, I don't know why I did that. What was I thinking? I don't know. It was like I was in a trance or unconscious. Well, welcome to reality in the 21st century. You and most of your neighbors are sleepwalking most of the time. Me too. It's very, very easy to live in a trance unaware of the 90% of the iceberg that's hidden below the water level. And yet with practice, and it is a practice, you don't get to a point, just like a professional athlete never gets to a point where they can stop practicing. A doctor or an attorney is licensed to practice. They never stop practicing until they retire and they're done. <laughs> you, you always practice. You always have to wake yourself up 
not just in the morning when you wake up from complete and total unconsciousness, but throughout the day, that sleepwalking trance that the vast majority of people live in. I was watching Bill Maher just day before yesterday, Friday night, and he was talking about how strange it is that millions of Americans vote for policies that are contrary to their own best interest. Why do they do that? And Bill Maher just keeps talking about how stupid people are. Well, fine, he's welcome to his opinion. It's really not that people are stupid. It's just that they're in a trance. They're hypnotized. They're not awake. They're not aware. They're existing up here in the tip of the iceberg, unaware of this enormous potential of understanding that exists in the feminine nature of the mind, the subconscious. So looking at the next slide, we go a little bit deeper into this concept of the mind as having gender and you can see that I've listed here the most basic functions of the two minds the five to ten percent that is the conscious mind is our will our free will our will power it's our volition whereas the subconscious mind is perhaps best described as the imagination just as the conscious mind of the masculine nature is the will, our volition, our free will, our ability to make decisions, to be logical and reasonable and analytical, it's the subconscious mind that dreams. It is the imagination. And the five elements of the imagination are creativity, and notice how the ability to go from specific to general in your creative thinking complements logic, which breaks things down from general to specific. That's nice to have access to both the masculine and the feminine nature. The imagination or subconscious mind, the feminine nature of the mind, is also able to provide us with what Germans would call the gestalt, the, the big picture, the whole enchilada, conceptual understanding. In other words, when you have observed a lot of little details and you, you have a sense that somehow they're connected, but you're not sure exactly how they're connected, all the reasoning and analysis and logic in the world is not going to give you an overarching conceptual understanding. You need to pull upon the feminine nature of the subconscious mind, and then suddenly you get this flash of light that we talked about before, the dawning, like the sun rising, the light bulb, or being thunderstruck by lightning. Bang, the light comes, and oh, you get the big concept. Now you see the whole picture, the overarching umbrella principle that integrates and unites all of these seemingly different but related concepts. Notice how this is 
generally not taught in school. School is limited to training the masculine or conscious mind. You don't learn much about using the imagination yet, except in the best schools from the best teachers. Your memory also exists in imagination. and Everybody has a remarkable memory. Recall is the challenge. That's the conscious mind reaching into the subconscious mind. And often that's difficult. Um, everybody knows the tip of the tongue phenomena, where you know that you know, and you're remembering, but hold on, I need a minute. <laughs> I, I don't remember just yet. Uh, I'll, I'll think of it in a moment. And then suddenly, you've already moved on to a different topic, you're talking about something else, and bang, it jumps into your brain. It jumped from the feminine into the masculine, from the subconscious into your conscious awareness. Again, relaxation, feeling safe, meditation, contemplation is the way the conscious mind, the masculine nature, accesses the subconscious or the feminine nature. Not surprisingly, the subconscious or the feminine would be the seat of your emotional feelings and uh, also the home of the autonomic or uh, sometimes just called the immune system, your body's ability to heal itself. And again, that's autopilot. All of this stuff is, for the most part, left on autopilot because people haven't learned how to access it. And at the bottom, I've pointed out that tension disables or separates these two minds. Relaxation empowers. I can't use the word enable anymore because the, the drug community sort of co-opted the definition of enabling. So we'll say tension disables or, or um, uh, what do I want the word? Disintegrates relationship of the masculine and feminine while relaxation integrates that would be another way of saying it relaxation empowers it's as if the uh, little arrow that goes between the two is a valve and the more tense and stressed we are the more narrow and constricted is the connection between the two minds relaxation empowers and integrates it would dilate and open the connection allowing the conscious mind to be more receptive of the talents and skills and faculties of the subconscious and also in the opposite direction because it's a two-way street the subconscious becomes more amenable to instruction or sometimes we call it suggestibility or hyper-suggestion. It takes orders um, with less resistance. How about if we put it that way? Again, I, I mentioned I had a problem with alignment. I, I, I do these PowerPoints in one program and have to convert them to another. and So you'll have to forgive the alignment is a little bit off on this slide, but this is simply a illustration of the Hegelian dialectic. George Hegel was a 
German philosopher in the early 19th century who really advanced the Platonic idea of a dialectic, a back and forth, a masculine and feminine nature to argumentation and understanding. Hegel said a thesis or an idea, this would be the masculine nature, inevitably gives rise to a different, often seen as opposite, concept or belief. It doesn't have to be opposite. It could just be different. That would be the antithesis or the antithesis. And this is the feminine nature. Notice how similar this is to the story of Adam's rib, that first God created man and then woman. Okay, Spirit, again, is thought of as preceding the material world. And so the thesis would be masculine, the antithesis would be feminine. And as I've pointed out on the bottom of this slide, whether the result of verbal conversation or the workings of a single mind, you have the same process going on in your head where you think a thought and then you argue with yourself in spite of yourself. Maybe you don't even want to argue with yourself, but you end up doing it anyway. Any idea that you have is going to give rise to a different idea. Realizing this, by the way, is one way of developing your understanding that you are not your thoughts. That would be horrible if, if your thoughts and your feelings were the limits of your awareness then you'd never know who you are. Am I this positive thought or this negative thought? Am I this great idea I just had, or am I the ideas that doubt my great idea and wonder? And the thesis and the antithesis go back and forth in a creative dynamic that leads through understanding and insight to a third element, the son, if you will, of father thesis and mother antithesis, which we call synthesis, which then becomes the new thesis, and then the antithesis arises, leading to a synthesis, which then becomes the new thesis, and it reproduces and regenerates, and in this way, human understanding unfolds. This is a really beautiful concept, and again, most people may not think they need to know this stuff or understand it, but as a student of personal development, you can see the importance, I'm sure. Here's a look at mental gender, the seventh key principle of the Kabbalion, in our emotional nature. We have love and fear. In this case, love would be the feminine and fear would be the masculine, uh, masculine. And the reason for that is a little bit abstract, but suffice to say, we have a dual nature. All of our emotions are either love-based or fear-based. Love is relaxed, attractive, healing, spiritual, whereas fear, you can see, is more masculine. It's 
tense. It likes its tension. Fear insists you better be tense. Get those tight muscles ready for danger. You never know. Somebody's out to get you. It's also, therefore, very separative. Just as love attracts, fear repels. Instead of being healing, love heals, the hurt, the fear is hurtful. And just as love is more spiritual, fear is more uh, physical in nature. The only point I want to make here is you've got to be careful with dualistic thinking. And in this area, you need to understand that the yin and yang of love and fear is a little more complicated than that. It's more that fear is the two extremes and love is the middle way. Um, in other words, the opposite of a terrorist, the people that did 9-11, for example, and deliberately killed thousands of innocent people, many of them Muslims, so as crazy as that is, to declare war on yourself, but then we always do, don't we? Declare war on ourselves. When you come to understand there's nobody here but us, just us humans, members of the same family, every war is a war you declare on yourself. And so you say, well, that's wrong. Well, then we bomb Afghanistan and go into Iraq using 9-11 as an excuse to conquer and plunder Iraq's oil. Hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians are slaughtered by the good guys, you see. Uh, a million people made homeless by the war in Iraq. So you can't divide war uh, any more than you could say, well, there's bad pirates and then there's good pirates. There are no good wars. Now, again, frightened people become very frightened when you say all war is wrong, all war is evil. Nothing is accomplished by killing people who killed you or your ancestors, you see. And so it's not that one extreme is fear and the other extreme is love. In this case, it's like two bar magnets with the negative poles on the outside and the positive poles on the inside. Love is the middle way. Love is the way, not the extreme. Truth is never found way out here in the extremes. In fact, the end zones of the football field are out of bounds. There's nothing happening out there. And that's where so many people live, left or right, liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican. Are you for the unions or for the corporations? And the model is archaic, archaic and simplistic. The playing field is the middle. The extremes are both fear. Remember, George Bush's response to terror was to be terrible and to out-terror the terrorists. And so you bombed us, so we're going to bomb you. But our bombs are right. Your bombs were wrong. Our bombs were good. 
your bombs were bad, it's absurd on the surface. So when we talk about the masculine and feminine in the emotional nature, love and fear, you need to really be elegant and deep and profound in your understanding. Right? Fear is the extremes, so-called masculine. The feminine is the middle way. That's loving, nurturing, understanding. The quality of love here is understanding. You know, when Christ said, love your enemy, he didn't mean hugs. He meant understand, free from fear. Very important concept. 2,000 years later, you'd think we'd have that worked out. Interestingly, the principle of gender does reveal how you can get something from nothing, how the universe could be created out of the void. And it's a simple mathematical formula that zero is equal to the negative and the positive of any known quantity. So minus X plus X equals nothing. Whether that X is the number two or the number 10 or the number 1,583.4, whatever, if you add the negative and the positive together, they cancel out, you get nothing. So if plus any quality or quantity, plus a minus that same quantity equals zero, turn it around, zero equals negative X plus X. All right. And the little graphic here demonstrates that nicely. Me plus you equals we. Me minus you equals nothing. All right, so how does the creator create the universe out of nothing? It divides it into positive and negative. The same thing, the yin and the yang, and from nothing springs all things. There's a little more sophisticated proof, but it requires infinity equaling zero. And... That's for people with higher math skills than I have, so I won't bore you with that. But if you do happen to have those higher math skills, explore the idea that infinity equals zero, and then try dividing by zero or dividing by infinity, and you come up with a lot of the same paradoxes. A lot of fun if you're mathematically oriented. And finally, the principle of gender on the plane of the soul is that there's a masculine and feminine nature here as well. And the soul is normally seen as feminine, while the incarnated, egoic, separated, physical, fleshy self is, in this context, generally thought of as masculine, whether it's a man or a woman. Uh, the physical human being is, the masculine in nature, the negative pole, not bad or wrong, just negative in a complementary sense, while the soul that contains it, notice the soul contains the physical being, not the other way around. Actually, both things are true. The soul would be more of the feminine nature in terms of, again, not sex and sexuality, 
or apparatus for reproduction, but in terms of the magnetics, so to speak, of gender, of positive and negative. And I'll put an Eckhart Tolle quote here from his book, The Power of Now, where in the very first chapter, he tells a story about being exceedingly depressed and waking up in the middle of the night just in deep and profound anguish at how incredibly depressed he is. And he hears himself say, I can't live with myself like this anymore. Now, it's likely most people have said that to themselves that at one point or another, you know, I can't live with myself like this, or I hate myself, or I don't like myself. In the Kabbalion, this is described as the masculine and feminine of the self. They call it I versus me. The I would be the soul nature, as in I am. The me is the separated physical self. But I think Toll says it even more eloquently with I and myself. Alice in Wonderland has the same dilemma. Where the hookah-smoking caterpillar says to Alice, Who are you? Alice says, I don't know. I ate this little biscuit, and I got really big, and then I drank from this little bottle, and I shrunk down and almost drowned in a river of my tears. I I don't know who I am. And the hookah-smoking caterpillar gets all upset and angry and says to her sternly, What are you talking about? You better explain yourself. And Alice says, I can't, because I'm not myself, you see. And it's just so beautifully profound. Of course you are not this pathetic human self. You are a soul. You are part of the heart of the Most High, the Most Divine. But we incarnate as this pathetic self. And the job is to discover that you're more than that, to mature, to grow up, and then to manage this self. Well, Tola says this in the very first chapter of The Power of Now, waking up depressed, I can't live with myself like this anymore, but two very brilliant questions popped into his mind immediately afterward. One was, wait a minute, if I can't live with myself like this anymore, how many of me are there? And then thirdly, he realized, if there's two or more, maybe only one of us is real. And he decided the I, the soul, the feminine quality in this case, is real. And the myself that's depressed <laughs> and separated and lonely and frightened as a result of feeling so alienated and alone in the world is not real. 
and will die. But the real self, the higher self, the truth of who you are, the eternal, immortal, infinite soul, always has been and always will be, for it shares the ground of the one thing, the one life. Eckhart Tolle, from The Power of Now. You can get a copy of the Kabbalion at the Kabbalion.org. It's K-Y-B-A-L-I-O-N. If you're listening just to the audio track and don't have the slides in front of you, go to the W's.Kabbalion.org, O-R-G, and you can download a free ebook, a PDF of the Kabbalion. All right? So that's the seventh principle, gender, and our final of seven parts in our study of the Kabbalion. Just an example of what's going to follow beginning on July 24th, two weeks from today, when we add the premium training at 1.30 Pacific time to the Mystery School. Again, the free forum will be here at 1 o'clock. The newsletter will be free. The archives will be free. We'll still podcast it. We'll still take your questions and comments. It'll simply be foreshortened. And for those of you who register for the premium training, that'll follow at 1.30 Pacific every Sunday afternoon and run until 2.45, 3 o'clock, something like that. Basically, 1.30 until 3. A password will be emailed to you when you register. You'll get the first password for that week. You can register for just a single class or at a reduced rate for a 13-week term or at a deeply discounted rate for an entire year. So the fee of the classes will run from $6.95 to just over $3, virtually nothing. We used to charge $12 to make you get in your car and drive across town. And even then, I thought $12 was cheap. A lot of teachers charge $25, $30 and more uh, for this information. So we're making it absolutely as affordable as possible. And the free forum will always be here. You've got archives as well of over 170 past classes that will always be posted for you and always be there for you. Just go to theagelesswisdom.com. You can even, besides listening to the stream, download any of those programs from the archives as an MP3 onto your computer and then put it onto your iPod, iPad, iPhone, whatever portable MP3 player you have, and listen to it in the car or while you're jogging or riding your bicycle or walking in the woods. It's so cool to have this material available in so many different forms and formats. We will be using slides in the premium training. We will be taking your comments by text or by telephone or Skype, and I'm really excited about it and looking forward to it. 
As I check the telephones now, I do not see any hands raised, but hello and aloha. I see a number of you listening by telephone and Skype. Don't know your names, but I can see where you are. And uh, let's go over to the Q&A, see if anybody has questions or just wants to say hi. And um, we have a few people on, Steve Ernst or Ernest, in Burbank. Hello, Stephen. He says, uh, he's talking about that water crystal research, and it's Dr. Emoto. He says he thinks it's suspect. It's a great metaphor, but may not be supported by follow-up research. You know, the same thing is true with Kirillian photography, Stephen, and that goes back to the 1960s. And it turned out that people who were skeptical of Kirillian photography were never able to replicate it. These were pictures of the aura around, oh, for example, a leaf off of a tree. And they would cut the leaf in half and then take the picture, and for a few hours, the aura would still be around the entire leaf. Well, a bunch of skeptics said, we need to submit this to scientific research, and they were never able to replicate the research. But when somebody who was more positive in their orientation uh, did the very same procedure, they were successful. And remember, in quantum physics, you have this proven principle going back 60, 70 years of the observer effect. It seems the consciousness of the experimenter is part of the experiment and could not be eliminated. So I don't doubt that if somebody who was a skeptic did their best to be a good scientist and tried to replicate that research that they would fail, while somebody who believed it was possible would be more successful. That's exactly the point. I'm really glad you brought it up. You cannot separate the field of consciousness from anything. Everything exists in that field, and so that would not surprise me at all. I mean, don't we have positive people and negative people agreeing on how prescient they were? Is that the right word? How they knew that was going to happen? The positive person gets a positive result and goes, oh, boy, I knew that was going to happen. And the pessimist, the negative person, as soon as they encounter the expected failure, says, see, I told you it was going to go south. That always happens. I knew it was going to break down or fail to work for me or so on. That's exactly the point. I sure appreciate you bringing that up. Phil Jaffe, Canoga Park, is with us, and he says uh, hi to and Carol Postel in La Habra says, hello, Michael and Doreen, aloha. Hello, Carol, nice to see you. I've got 22 minutes after the hour real time, so I'm going to suggest we do a quick little visualization exercise, and uh, then we'll wrap it up for the day today. And be back next week again. Our topic will be um, a general topic on the mystery school where we've been more about what I was just describing and how to register for the premium training and 
give you an opportunity next week to suggest topics as well and get more involved. Uh, how to use the share one with a friend uh, button or gadget that we have at the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And one thing that I want to be sure to mention that I don't think I have mentioned, for those of you who enroll for a year, you get a bonus, which is our premium audio, Finding Yourself in Paradise. This is a studio-quality personal and spiritual development program that I do every week with my business partner, Steve Snyder. We've worked on and off, as most of you know, for over 35 years together. And this program is normally 3.96 a month, 99 cents a week. And again, studio quality, but it's pre-recorded. The only downside is we can't take your questions and comments. But that's going to be included free. A year subscription, that's a $50 value alone that will include for those of you who subscribe at the most affordable rate, just a little over $3 a week. If you register for an entire year, you get the Finding Yourself in Paradise series included at no additional charge. So that's a nice feature. I'm sure that'll be the most popular subscription plan. But if you want to enroll just for a 13-week term, a quarter of a year, you can do that or one class at a time until you decide whether this is something you really want to do. The new premium training, we'll talk a lot about it next week and answer your questions. And then it'll begin at 1.30, right after this Mystery School, which begins always at 1 o'clock Pacific, every Sunday afternoon. So close your eyes and relax. Sit back. Get comfortable. Do a couple of head rolls and some shoulder shrugs. Close your eyes and let's just do a real brief little meditation. Breathing. Uh, two or three nice, slow, deep breaths. And focus on the exhale. Focus on the letting go. Create and sense in your body a feeling of letting go. And then allow your breathing to naturally and normally find its natural rhythm. Continue to feel muscles relaxing, feeling very safe. Bring to mind a time when you felt wonderfully safe and relaxed. And consider, as Teilhard de Chardin said in his book, Phenomena of a Man, that you don't have a spiritual nature, you don't have a soul, but rather you are a soul. That you are in form in this physical body, but primarily and essentially even more true, you are above and free of form. There are times, like now, when you're safe and relaxed, 
that it's really easy to realize that, to understand and to accept that you are your better nature. And you can appropriate your fear, the frightened, separative self. Comfort your ego like you would comfort a child after a bad dream. Give yourself a hug and whisper, everything will be okay. It only feels like you're separated. You're really part of the one life. And in these quiet and still, safe, relaxed, and peaceful states, you can know the truth. Not just think it. Even go beyond believing it. To a pervasive knowledge and a deep understanding that I am that I am. Not this I am, but that. Take a nice big deep breath, inhaling, fill your lungs, and as you exhale now, ah, open your eyes wide awake, back to the room, feeling fine, all rested and refreshed, and you can repeat that anytime you want, maybe for five minutes or ten minutes. Twice a day for 20 minutes would be extraordinary. It would be a wonderful thing to do for yourself. To just sit quietly and watch your breath. To zoom out to that bigger picture. Thanks a lot for being here. Thanks for studying the Kabbalion with us. Join us next week. Watch the newsletter for the link. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.